Welcome to Twill, the week in health law, the occasional podcast of record for the discussion of health law and policy. This episode was recorded on January 8th, 2020. I am Nicholas Terry, a professor of law at Indiana University in Indianapolis. Today, a welcome back to Kirk Nara, a partner at and co-chair of the Cybersecurity and Privacy Practice at Wilma Hale in D.C., a leader in the privacy bar, Mr. Nara has been involved in developing the privacy legal field for 20 years. As a founding member and longtime board member of the International Association of Privacy Professionals, he helped establish the organization's privacy bar section. He's taught privacy issues at several law schools, including serving as an adjunct professor at the Washington College of Law at American University. In addition, he currently serves as a fellow with the Cordell Institute for Policy and Medicine and Law at Washington University in St. Louis, and as a fellow with the Institute for Critical Infrastructure Technology. Welcome back, sir. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. So this is the first pod of 2020, and there are a couple of reasons why I wanted to feature your work early in the new year. First, the European General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, has now been in force for a year and a half. Second, California's Consumer Privacy Act, or CCPA, came into force on January the 1st of this year. But I thought we should perhaps start with the more mundane and look at the state of HIPAA privacy and security. This year struck me as fairly light on enforcement. There were a few big dollar settlements, but sort of in the range that we've got used to. So University of Rochester Medical Center paid $3 million for failing to encrypt mobile devices. Centara Hospitals paid 2.175 million for failure to comply with breach notification Jackson Health System, a similar number, 2,154,000, again, for failure to timely report a breach. Uh, this time, uh, interestingly, uh, with regard to a whole bunch of paper records. It's been a while since we saw the, <laughs> the old paper records going astray. And then uh, Touchstone Medical Imaging in Tennessee, uh, a flat 3 million after a server was exposed to web indexing. Oops. And uh, then the failure to timely report the breach. But overall, Kirk, I thought down year on year from what OCR, uh, HHS's Office of Civil Rights itself proclaimed 2018 to be, which was a, um, a banner year for enforcement. HIPAA's never mundane, Nick, so I have to, uh, <laughs> I have to go on that. But, you know, I, it's funny. I, I get a lot of calls from reporters about enforcement and ups and downs. And, uh, you know, I spoke to someone last week who had gone through the uh, wall of shame on breach reporting and thought there was way more breach reporting. I, you know, maybe maybe it's like being a long-term investor. I don't really care that much about an individual year up and down. I think that, you know, the cases that you're mentioning are the kinds of cases that they traditionally bring. Mm -hmm. um, the one addition this year, which started towards the end of the year, and I think is going to be a really interesting thing to watch in this coming year, is what seems to be a, I'll say a new, not even renewed, but a new interest in pursuing cases involving access to individual records, where the government has paid a lot of attention recently to failures by healthcare providers to provide access to consumers of their medical records. And I think the struggle they're going to have is that those tend to be smaller dollar cases, but I think they've started to show that they're going to do some of those cases anyways. And I think that's going to be an interesting new development. Those access cases, I think, um, I mean, there's been work by ProPublica in this regard, but I suppose uh, 
the most highly publicized uh, study was by Citizen, yep. um, helmed by um, our friend, the great Devin McGraw. <laughs> yes. And in that report, she, and I quote, uh, based on the scores of responses of 210 healthcare providers to record requests and the responses of nearly 3,000 healthcare institutions to telephone surveys, more than 50% of healthcare providers are out of compliance with the HIPAA right of access. And as you note, there's been a sort of a bit of a pivot at OCR. We've had our first two settlements, um, Bayfront Health in St. Petersburg and Corunda Medical, both paying $85,000, both interestingly following complaints from single patients. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be the trend or do you think it's going to broaden out? Well, I mean, that, that's that's the question really is, you know, you usually OCR wouldn't do much with a single complaint. Um, and, and, and there's a variety of reasons for that. And, and resources is certainly on that list. I think what they are saying at this point is there's really no excuse for healthcare providers not to be fulfilling individual rights to access. It's important to patients. It's been in the rule from the beginning. You need to do this. And they're sending that message pretty clearly. And I think that what they are also doing is saying, we may actually treat these cases differently than we treat other cases. If somebody if somebody filed a complaint and said, oh, I got some you know marketing letter from a hospital about something, that, you know, they're not going to do much with that case in the normal course. But I think that what they are going to do now is they're going to respond more quickly. They're going to spend time and energy on these cases, even though they're not generating a ton of dollars, I think it's something that it, it's an example of something that they haven't done a ton of. And, and I say that not because I want to say it's good or bad, but I think objectively, they haven't done a lot of cases that I call sort of send a message cases. We see that a ton in, for example, healthcare fraud, where the government will pursue you know a hospital for a particular thing and basically send a message that we know other hospitals are doing this. You need to stop it or we're going to get you too. And we have haven't seen that in the privacy area as much. We, you know, you you can certainly look at OCR's cases, including the ones that you mentioned a few minutes ago, and say these are things that they care about and these are things that are important. But but we know those things. And so the best example I've seen recently was there's been actually two cases. But the first case was the one that drove this home to me. It was a case involving a hospital in New York um, that had run basically done a reality TV show in the hospital. Oh, the Presbyterian. And, yeah, and and that case came about because. A, a, an older woman is watching this reality TV show at home and sees her husband die on television. And you, you know, and and the government investigates that. And you know, in other settings, the government might have said, you know what, this was a really dumb idea. Don't do it anymore. But here they said they they said this is intolerable. We can't have this. And so they sent a message. And I think they're doing that with um with these access cases to some extent. I think that when hospitals and it's mostly hospitals, we haven't seen it yet going to an individual doctor. Office, I think we will, but I don't think the hospitals can look at this and say, you know what, eighty-five thousand dollars. We're not that worried about eighty-five thousand dollars. I think they're going to take the message. We really need to get this right because we can't be the next poster child on this on this problem. And again, for 
the most part, there's really no excuse on getting these records to people. Now, you mentioned, Nick, at the beginning, CCPA in California. One of the things that we are seeing that is going to start to become an issue in HIPAA, it's already an issue under CCPA and certainly under GDPR, is sometimes it's really hard to figure out who the person is. And, you know, when when you're asking for a copy of records, you got to make sure you're not giving those records to the wrong person. <laughs> and we're, we're seeing in, again, using CCPA as an example, we're starting to see these companies that are sort of automating these requests and they're just sending out almost generic requests. And so companies are getting an email saying, hi, please give me all the records for Nick Terry. And that's it. That's all they have. And, you know, companies can't produce those records. They, they don't know that it's really Nick Terry. They don't know that it's the right Nick Terry. And so there's a concern on that end. I think that one of the things that's been going on in the healthcare industry is people have been too cautious. And I think the government is certainly sending the message, you know, we're not we're not really interested in your excuses, but I think making sure it's the right person is going to continue to be a good a good issue. And as these pressures mount, I suspect we're going to see some situations where there's in effect a security breach because the wrong person is getting access through those individual rights. So do you think that OCR's interest in this and perhaps even beyond OCR into the HHS more generally is not just about HIPAA in the case of access, but is also tied up with, uh, let's face it, the relative failure of interoperability. <laughs> the, you know, both at the sort of the electronic level, and then I guess almost sort of in parallel to the comment you just made that uh, you have these, these allegations of information blocking and so on. The noise that surrounds sort of the Post-Cures Act uh, regulatory agenda. Uh, do they sort of fit together in a way? I'm not quite sure how to answer that. I mean, I, I, I could see them fitting together, but I also think they're different issues. I mean, I think interoperability at a grossly overgeneralized level is sharing among participants in the healthcare industry more than it is sharing with patients. They're not entirely disconnected. I mean, where, where we're seeing, for, for example, where I think they come the closest together is where, a, for example, a patient request comes in and says, transfer my records from provider X to provider Y or from EHR X to EHR Y, where there start to become, in addition to the access rights of the individual, also some sort of competitive issues. And I think, so, so that may be an overlap. That's also an area, frankly, where those risks of sending things to the wrong place are pretty high because I have seen vendors who have basically been, you know, sort of stepping in and making requests for people that they say they are acting on behalf of without necessarily being acting on behalf of those people. So I do think there's certainly tensions here. Um, so so it, look, it's, it's a complicated mess. I think that, you know, particularly when, when a patient says, give me the records, which is most of what the cases have been about before, there's no excuse for not giving the patients the records. You can, you know, a hospital who has medical records about somebody can figure out if it's the right person and get them their records. And, you know, I've been sending a message to my clients look, this is something you've got to do now. I had thought you were taking this seriously previously, and I do think most people had been, but you really got to 
pay attention to this. You do not want to be the next case. I think some of those, you know, again, interoperability is also a more, I don't know if I could quite make the argument macro rather than micro. I mean, individual rights are micro level. Interoperability is a little more at the macro level. And I do think there's continuing challenges there. Um, you know, we're not going to solve that today or tomorrow. I don't think the blocking regs are going to solve it either. But, you know, st- steady progress is also kind of important or it's not irrelevant. All right. And I guess um, this sort of ties up into the sort of second topic I'd like to discuss. Broad picture, one of the reasons why we want interoperability, we want, you know, the APIs transferring data from providers to patients uh, why we want access rights. That's part of a bigger picture of trying to improve care coordination and patient participation in their care. And I, I see some of those issues being expressed in that HIPAA RFI that you've talked about, which I think went out just over a year ago, right? With Yeah, went out over, yeah, that's about right. It went out over a year ago, and I think the comments are not quite a year old. Yeah, I think February, the the comments closed. So I know you've written about this and thought about this. What exactly did HHS sort of explicitly ask for? And then perhaps I know there were about 1300 comments, <laughs> but but could you summarize what in fact they got? <laughs> As you know, I certainly read every one of those 1300 comments in incredible detail. So I think it's an interesting RFI and I will be really curious what the actual proposed regulation looks like because we're not there yet. But it was a, you know, may, may, maybe it was the first time in the HIPAA area where we've seen the current administration sort of think about a deregulatory side. I mean, one, one of the things that's been interesting as the, as this administration has come in place is they, you know, they went around asking industries, what regulations do you want us to get rid of? And, you know, people in environmental and various other things said, you know, let's get rid of all kinds of things. The healthcare industry did not want to, did not ask for changes to the HIPAA rules for the most part. The industry generally has got comfortable with the rules. And, you know, you, you've heard me say this before, that I think the rules where they apply generally work pretty well for both industry and consumers. That where they apply is a big issue, but where they apply, I think they work pretty well for both parties. The, the RFI seems to be exploring changing the rules to encourage more sharing of information, which is an interesting thing to look at from a privacy rule. Um, we have seen a number of places where the administration seems seems to believe that HIPAA is in some way responsible in part for things like the opioid crisis. Now, I know that's something you've done a ton of work on, and I suspect you don't believe that the core of the opioid crisis is a HIPAA privacy rule problem. But no, it's an interesting issue to say that providers should be sharing more information. And, you know, my my concern or my, I don't know if concern is quite the right word, my, my question about where they're going is if privacy rules are a cause of the opioid crisis, meaning there was information about patients that could have been shared among providers who could have done something to help with the crisis. I don't think the problem was HIPAA. I think the problem was other laws like the uh, substance abuse rules under Part 2 and other state laws. And changing HIPAA doesn't doesn't help on that regard. So I'm not sure that that direction is necessarily going to be a useful direction. Where I did see some useful points out of the RFI is in another really interesting area of healthcare, which is the sort of idea of social determinants of health. And there are some questions that are coming up about essentially sharing information with entities who we now understand are relevant to people's health. Think affordable housing or a food bank. We know that if people, you know, people that don't have the right food,
food and don't have enough food are going to get sick. We have we don't historically think of that as a healthcare issue, but we now know it's related to healthcare. But a food bank isn't within the HIPAA structure. And so the rule is asking about how do we encourage more sharing of information in that context. It's a really good question. It's a problem because of the limited scope of the HIPAA rules. It's not clear to me that OCR has thought through all of the implications of that. Some of the comments certainly address that point. For example, if you create a permission in HIPAA to share information with a food bank, you just make an exception. What what then is the status of the food bank? It's not a covered entity. It's not a business associate. It's not anything under HIPAA. And so unless you somehow close that loophole, what you're doing is you're creating yet another situation where you're taking protected information under HIPAA, disclosing it in a permitted way, but that disclosure results in that information no longer being subject to HIPAA's protection. And so those those gaps and those place those limits are, I think, becoming a more significant part of the overall HIPAA privacy debate and the other overall healthcare privacy debate. And that's one of the reasons you mentioned GDPR up front, you mentioned CCPA. All of these rules are creating additional complexity for how the broadest range of healthcare information is being addressed. And I think it's getting harder and harder for both industry and consumers to deal with all these different rules that are covering their the same kinds of information depending on who touches. When you look at the sort of the the basic menu in the RFI of of, of what they were looking for input on, um, value based care, I think, and coordinated care models are both stalling out a bit, and so there's a sort of a semi desperate attempt to to reboot them and, and get things rolling again to reduce friction. And I think your point on the opioid crisis is is very well made. Um, that you know the tendency was to blame HIPAA or and or part two, whereas really what's to blame is a lack of really robust anti-discrimination rules against persons with um, mental health and substance use issues. Um, if if we had robust um, anti-discrimination, anti-stigma rules, then we could be far more uh, open about um, moving data about these folks around. In fact, it would actually benefit them because so many of the folks suffering from um, opioid use disorder or substance use disorder more generally are no longer being treated in sort of part two-like places. They're being treated in general care, in primary, or they should be being treated in primary care. Sure. Um, the um, the segmentation of data categories or data cohorts means that a lot of data about folks with mental health and substance use uh, problems don't get researched properly because that data is sort of viewed as we better not go there. It's not safe. Yeah, you know, Nick, I mean, I, I, I it's interesting. I, I'm, I, I have a different take on that a little bit. And, um, you know, I, th- I think the discrimination stuff is obviously important. But I think that the, I mean, the discrimination concept is why part two essentially still exists. And I think what we're seeing is actually other problems resulting from just confusion over the rules and some of the limitations of the rules, where I mean, sharing among two doctors 
matters is not likely to create a discrimination kind of concern or a stigma kind of concern. I mean, the original Part 2 rules were designed to make sure that if somebody was getting substance abuse treatment, the fact of their substance abuse treatment wasn't going to be used against them in a criminal prosecution. That's not, you know, that's not what we're talking about in these contexts. And we're certainly seeing in situations where, I mean, for example, this, this is one of the places where the value-based care idea comes in, which is if we're going to have a situation where providers, for example, are taking on all kinds of risk to treat the patients, they can only do that effectively if they know everything about their patients. And if you're going to say to them, we're going to give you a bunch of patients, but we're not going to tell you which of them have substance abuse problems, there's almost no chance that's going to work out well. <laughs> and so I think that's where we're seeing some of more some more of these issues. And you know, again, I don't think I mean you you can change HIPAA, you can change HIPAA in two ways. And and the RFI sort of dances around both of these. You can make HIPAA more permissive. I don't think that's really the problem. HIPAA is pretty permissive in a lot of these situations. Some of the RFI language makes it sound like they're going to force disclosure. I don't like that answer either because, you know, that's a problem. I don't think you want to take discretion out of the hands of these providers. I do think it would be helpful to give them more comfort that they're allowed to make some of these disclosures. Now, the other issue that gets factored into this is, let me go back to my food bank example. The food bank example is only a problem if the patient says, don't tell the food bank about my situation. If the if the hospital wants to disclose information to the food bank, they can always ask the patient permission. And this is sort of assuming that we're doing this without the patient's permission or contrary to the patient's wishes. And that's a tricky, you know, that's a, I don't know if it's quite the slippery slope, but that's a tricky place to be in. And so, you know, again, I, I am generally a big fan of how the HIPAA process works because I think it writes the rules in a, in a way that gives, you know, doctors and hospitals who understand the rules a lot of a lot of permission to do what they think is appropriate. There clearly is confusion. There clearly are people who are too cautious. But again, I don't know that that's a problem with the rules. I think there's other ways to deal with that. I don't like a situation where you're going to take that discretion away too much because I think the doctors generally can use that in, a, in appropriate ways. Where I do think we're seeing more and more problems with the HIPAA structure is that it's we're seeing more impact from its limits, that it doesn't apply in so many places where we're talking about healthcare information. It's just not healthcare information that a doctor has or a hospital has. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I mean, I, I think the, the one point that I would return to on behavioral health is and perhaps help people understand sort of some of the angst associated with you're taking my part two away sort of thing is that the behavioral health cohort has been consistently disappointed. The parity rules haven't really led to much. And the one thing that perhaps you can hang on to is the super protection of uh, behavioral health data and sort of a sense that, hey, you're, you're taking away one of the last real things that seems to work. Why don't you build HIPAA up a little bit closer to part two rather than pulling part two down to HIPAA level? Isn't there a, a sort of a middle ground there? That, that, that is a position that some advocates in the part, well, I don't even know it's the part part two space. I mean, there, there, there are mental health advocates who want to see mental health information given 
given some additional protection. I mean, one one of the complexities that that part two creates is it's not a you know we, you you've been using the term behavioral health and that's a term that you know as far as I can tell sort of combines substance abuse and behavioral health and uh, mental health. Part two is designed specifically for substance abuse, and so one of the challenges that we've seen in part two is you know places don't have any way to distinguish different categories of information, and so we've got these very strict uh, requirements imposed on again what was originally a pretty narrow set of data. It was substance abuse treatment data held by facilities that were only substance abuse treatment facilities because that's all that there was in the you know early 70s when these rules were coming into effect. And now we're seeing the implications of having a system, uh, you know, having having an isolated category of information that we can't really define very well in a system that doesn't isolate that treatment in the same way it does. And so I, th- I think this is a perfect example of the kind of balancing that I think HIPAA does pretty well. Again, you can take, anytime you're doing balancing, you can take a different take on the balancing. But I think HIPAA works well for both industry and the consumers and for the overall healthcare system. It's not clear to me that the part two rules today, how they're, you know, sort of applied across the system necessarily work well for all three of those audiences. You may say they work well for particular subgroup of patients. But again, what the RFI is basically saying is we think it's not necessarily good for the system and we're coming up with situations where it's actually not good for those individuals either. I have some sympathy for that perspective. I think that you know the 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 amount of information that is not being shared that is useful for parts of our healthcare system including treatment of patients because of part 2 is pretty significant. And you know part 2 was built in a time where we had no federal protection of health, other kinds of healthcare information at all and 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 HHS has been moving, you know, moving part 2 closer to HIPAA sort of not going the direction that you, that you were throwing out as a possibility. They've been moving HIPAA and, and I and I think where I think they've gotten to a point although they've made some noise about one additional step. I think they've gotten to a point where they need to change the statute before they can go any further. But I'm again I'm sympathetic to that. I mean I I think that that one of the things we're dealing with across the healthcare system at this point is the impact of confusion. And you know, I I you know, I have some personal self-interest in that confusion because that's part of how I make my living is trying to explain to people all the confusion. But confusion isn't good for anybody in the system. It's not good for patients. It's not good for the for the industry. It's not good for the system at large. And I think that where that confusion is having the most impact right now is in the general substance abuse mental health um, area, where again, there's just, what's happening with confusion is less sharing than is probably good. You know, the perfect example of that, and this is now a, an older story, but um, there was about, I want to say 10 years ago now, there was that, you probably remember that, that shooting at Virginia Tech, which was, you know, one of the early mass shootings. We now see far too many of those in other settings. But, you know, that, that setting and, 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 and that incident after some reviews by the state of Virginia revealed that it was clear that there were people in the system who knew that kid was a problem and didn't know what they were allowed to do and didn't think they were allowed to share information. And as a result, didn't share information. And as a result, you know, nothing happened prior to that shooting. Now, and, 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 and again, so you read that and you say, all right, there, there's too many rules. It's too confusing. That doesn't help anybody. And I I, I agree with that. Um, at the same time, and this is something I use with my students, I say, all right, let's, let's say you clarify the rules to make clear and everyone understands that they can report this information. The impact of that is you're now going to report 100 kids like that, 99 of whom are never going to shoot anybody. And you probably don't know which is the one. Now, you may decide that's a that's good, that's bad, that's indifferent. I mean, that's a judgment call, but at least it's a judgment that 
you're making you're making sort of a conscious judgment rather than having this situation where confusion is driving so much of the event. And, and I think, again, to the extent that, that HHS has a point in their RFI, I think one of the points is it's too confusing for people and therefore they're not sharing enough. So let's move on. And I guess before we talk about sort of existing and future legislation, particularly um, legislation that um, or, or data protection problems that arise outside of or apparently outside of traditional healthcare entities. Um, and you've mentioned that a couple of times. To provide context for our discussion, a couple of recent headlines. Um, September last year, ProPublica did an investigation found there were 5 million medical images floating around the web on hundreds of un- unprotected servers. And Senator Warner has been sort of firing off broadside letters as HH at uh, OCR saying what's going on. And then in November, we found out about Google's Project Nightingale, a partnership with Ascension, which uh, listeners may well know is a healthcare system that operates across 21 states and the district that apparently gave Google access to 50 million patient records. Um, how does HIPAA relate, or perhaps more appropriately, not relate to those kinds of issues? And then uh, maybe we can start talking about the GDPR and CCPA. Let, let's let's separate those two. So the first one about medical records being exposed on the internet. I don't, yeah, I don't know that we know where those records came from, but presumably they they're they're records of a hospital or a doctor's, you know, somebody like that, and that sounds like just a security problem. So that's sort of a normal HIPAA issue, and that would fit into the context of the kinds of cases you were talking about up front. The other matter that you mentioned generated a ton of media attention for what is frankly a kind of normal activity. Um, Hospital systems hire vendors all the time to host their records and do data analytics. There's a process for that. You you hire a vendor, you have a business associate relationship with them, you have a contract with them. The business associate is subject to, to the HIPAA security rule and is subject to significant portions of the HIPAA privacy rule. And if instead of hiring Google, Ascension had hired Kirk's Analytics Services, that's that's a complete non-event. And so I think that, you know, the original reporting on that I thought was um, really overblown. And, you know, you, you you can say that we're concerned about Google because of its Google, because it's Google, but you have to basically say they're going to disregard, we're, we, we're concerned because we think they're going to disregard all of their obligations that are imposed by the existing legal structure. And so that, those projects actually, actually are questions about, is HIPAA working? How does HIPAA work for places where it's intended to work? Where HIPAA becomes not relevant are things like wearables and mobile apps and consumer-oriented healthcare websites and you know all the different places in our in our economy now where there's healthcare data where there isn't a doctor or a hospital or a health insurer involved and those are places where the HIPAA rules don't apply at all and you know so so when you talk about GDPR GDPR protects health information it doesn't matter where that health information is held, who has it, where it came from. It's just protected as health 
information. In the United States, we protect under HIPAA certain data when it's held by certain people for certain purposes. And so it's a much narrower construct. Again, I think it works well where it applies, but it doesn't apply to a lot. And and the places it doesn't apply have been growing over the last few years. I think that's that's an accurate statement with regard to sort of the, the big untenable gap, as you put it, with regard to wearables and mobile data, sort of the consumer-facing yep. kind of piece about this. But why I raise the Google example, and I do agree with you, by the way, about uh, the the tenor of the reporting. I think it was very much led by previous Google slash Alphabet interactions that had proven to be a little unwise, such as the one with the London Hospital Trusts and so on that were... Um, uh, heavily criticized by the information commissioner in the UK. Um, but there is this other sort of trend that's developing of what we would not typically view as healthcare data, or maybe one should say clinical data, but rather is social determinant data mm-hmm. that is being shared by big tech with healthcare or is being transferred to and from between big tech and big healthcare. Mm -hmm. And it's a little difficult to figure out, I think, from the outside, what's going on. What are they doing with this data? Is it innocuous, even positive, because of what we can learn from social determined data? I mean, we've been screaming for that to be used more. Or is it data that is used to increase patient segregation? and drive profit what's the sort of trading that's going on between the covered entities and the non-covered entities and and i guess technically does it fall within tpo treatment payment and healthcare operations so i think there are a couple of sort of these sort of gap like um things one is the consumer facing piece that you describe and secondly this sort of sort of mind meld almost yeah. between big tech and big health. No, I, I, absolutely. And, and and I've been, you know, that's a, that's a topic that I've been interested in for, I don't know, a decade now. And I, and I think about it from two directions. I Exactly the way you described it, which is there's the people who are just outside the healthcare system, but they have healthcare data. And that's one set of issues. The other set of issues, and it, it comes, you, you you know, you're describing it as a, as a big tech issue. I think it's, it's more than that in the sense that, for example, healthcare companies now are gathering all kinds kinds of information about their patients. And they can get it, you can call it social determinants of health, you call it whatever you use. I, I use in my classes, I use a, a, a study that I think the New York Times reported on four or five years ago, where it was revealed after this study that um, consumer data that was obtained from you know traditional data brokers involving income, marital status, and number of cars were relevant for figuring out emergency room utilization. Now, you know, that's, first of all, that's really interesting. And one of the things I was asking my students, says, all right, they figured out that these three data points are relevant. How many data points did they have to test that weren't relevant? I mean, there's no way that somebody said, I'm going to go do a study on these three things and have it be right. They tested a hundred things. But at the same time, when when the ho- if, if the hospital gets that data and they, they get Nick Terry's consumer purchasing data and they bring it into Nick Terry's medical record, absolutely that's protected by HIPAA. It's not protected when the data broker holds it because the data broker got it because you're shopping at the grocery store or at the 
you know, at Walmart. But when they bring it in and they connect it to your patient records, absolutely protected by HIPAA. And so the question of what that hospital can do with it is then a question of the HIPAA rules. Now, some of those things about, for example, pricing or discrimination, there's a real interesting question. I mean, HIPAA doesn't particularly say anything about that in any direction. HIPAA is not normative in that sense. It doesn't, it doesn't, it, it, it says hospital can do analytics on the data. It doesn't say hospital can do analytics to do good things versus do bad things. That's regulated by other laws. And so one of the things that I think has been really interesting in the federal debate about uh, privacy legislation is in things like big data analytics and predictive analytics, which is if we're going, are we going to regulate how big data is used because of concerns about discrimination? Is that a privacy issue or is it a something else issue? And I think historically we've viewed it as a something else else issue. For example, we regulate health insurers through the health insurance regulation process, not through the privacy rule. Now, we don't have to do it that way going forward, but I think there's a real question as to whether, you know, what's the right place? Do you say you can't collect this kind of data because you might use it in a discriminatory way? Or do we say collect it and we're going to regulate how you use it through discrimination laws? And I think that's a key issue that we're going to be seeing as we look at a national debate on privacy. I think that's exactly right. I mean, and, you know, to an extent, some of the anti-discrimination laws that we passed before 2010 maybe would not have been quite so necessary once you have Affordable Care Act provisions stopping the use of pre-existing conditions. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, I mean, and and keep in mind, I mean, that that's where the HIPAA law comes from, right? Right. I mean, the, the whole purpose of the HIPAA law probably isn't necessary if ACA is in effect in 1996, because people would be able to move jobs without having to worry about their pre-existing condition when they switch jobs. And and if that law hadn't have gotten passed, we wouldn't have we wouldn't even be talking about the HIPAA privacy rule. We'd be, I mean, frankly, we might be talking about a better privacy rule because maybe we would have had a privacy rule that was written based on an actual privacy law rather than a law that was regulating other stuff that happened to mention privacy. Um, but but yeah, all, I, I agree with all of that. If, 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 if you knew for a fact that it was illegal for insurers to engage in any kind of discrimination based on this other information, I think we would care less about what they're doing with that information. And and a lot of the concerns, and, and, and there are parts of HIPAA that say this. There's a provision in HIPAA that basically allows patients to say to their doctor, if I pay for this service my Myself, do not tell the insurance company about getting this treatment. And I have always struggled, and I use this in my classes. I try to get the students to figure out what's the point of that provision other than I don't trust the health insurance companies. Now, there may be plenty of reasons not to trust the health insurance companies, but we typically don't address that in a privacy law. We address that in health insurance regulation. And, you know, that's a funny provision that's been sitting in that law. And, and there's all kinds of news stories, and I'm using a couple in my first class that I teach on Monday, where, you know, health insurers are gathering up all this data about you and we're going to talk about what the privacy issues there are. And again, it's it's it may not be that they're privacy issues. It may be that they are, we don't trust health insurers or we want to regulate health insurers differently rather than them being privacy law. All right. So let's talk more directly about building the better mousetrap um, <laughs> and talk about the CCPA and its implications. There is no chance said, the CCPA is the better mousetrap. <laughs> Just to be clear. It's, it's, it's a mousetrap, <laughs> it but But it's a little unclear what rodent it is trying to get. (laughs) It's also a little bit of an impossible question to know because we haven't seen the California rulemaking, right? Uh, Enforcement doesn't begin until the middle of the year. We still see things in flux. Uh, Politico reported today that 
there's a new California bill that drops a carve out for biomedical research. Drops an additional carve out. There's already That's one. right. So, what is the the nut of CCPA? Why why is it why has it attracted so much attention? CCPA creates three categories of companies that deal with healthcare information. One is HIPAA regulated entities. They are primarily carved out of CCPA. So, a doctor, a hospital is primarily doesn't have to worry about CCPA, at least for its patient information. There may be other information that HIPAA doesn't regulate that they have to worry about, and that's been an interesting surprise for some healthcare companies, but put that aside for a second. Then we have companies who are regulated by a law called the Confidentiality of Medical Information Act, which until about six months ago, I think I was the only person who seemed to know that law existed because I would teach that law. Now there's all kinds of companies who are saying, wait a minute, maybe I'm subject, I'm not subject to HIPAA, but maybe I'm subject to this California medical privacy law because that gets you out of CCPA also. Now, some mobile apps and some wearables are actually covered by the California medical law, not CCPA, because there's a separate carve out. So that's the second category is CMIA covered. And third category is everyone else who deals with healthcare information. They're covered by CCPA. And so CCPA is creating all kinds of issues for anybody who is subject to it. Notice issues, individual rights issues, don't sell issues, all kinds of challenges challenges there. And but but again from 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 my perspective the main thing it does is it creates these three different categories for the same information. And that's cre- you know that is impossible for consumers to figure out. I mean I, my law students can't figure it out much less than average consumer. And it's creating problems for the industry because it's it's creating just all kinds of confusion and extra challenges and extra compliance hurdles that aren't productive compliance hurdles. They're just we have to do it differently when we're doing business with this kind of entity than if we're doing business with this kind of entity. And I think the industry may be coming around slowly to the idea that maybe what we need is a general overall healthcare privacy law. Not sure any, you know, how many people are there yet, but I think CCPA is highlighting what happens when you have different rules applied to the same information. What we've had historically is we've had HIPAA or nothing. Now we have HIPAA, CCPA, CMIA, GDPR, and some other areas where it's the FTC or nothing, but it's too many different rules. And that's having a significant impact on lots of kinds of medical innovation. It's having an impact on those social determinant of health areas. It's having an issue. It's having a creating problems for getting consumers more involved in their healthcare because partially that involves getting them to use things that aren't going to be regulated by HIPAA. So this idea of crossing these jurisdictional lines is creating more and more complexities, most of which aren't good for anybody in the system. It's not It's not a trade-off, oh, this is good for patients and bad for industry. It's actually bad for everybody. So I think one of the very first things I ever learned from you. <laughs> and he kept, Was there a second? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, invo- that involved food and wine. Uh-huh. Um, but the, the very first was, I think we were on a, a panel together and you made something, I'm going to butcher your, your thought, was that privacy regulation, including increased privacy regulation, will be taken on board by responsible corporations because for them, knowing what the rules are, having certainty is paramount. 
Whereas it's the unscrupulous who will be the ones that actually will be brought to heel by the regulation. Now, I wonder how true that is today in this context. With the possible exception of Microsoft, which has announced it will extend CCPA protections nationwide, although a cynic might attribute that to Microsoft being considered, quote, a service provider right, right. under the CCPA, which is sort of has the lowest level of obligations. But that's another, that's a yep. whole different pod. But I'm just wondering whether the industry generally, the tech behemoths, uh, will actually go along with anything other than a slightly tougher notice and consent law. And I believe notes and consent to be bankrupt. Uh-huh. And then only as a trade for federal preemption of tough state laws, such as CCPA, or we've just seen new legislation in Nevada. Yeah. There's stuff on the way in DC and New York. Yep. Um, I mean, I put put it this way. I, I I think that that's obviously the big question right now. And I mean, my 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 personal view, and I you know I work with a lot of these companies. I don't I don't speak for them in any respect. But I mean, I I, I think that there is. I I don't think that the big companies are opposed to all regulation. I don't think they're necessarily even opposed to meaningful regulation. I do think there is an increasing number of companies who basically say we want one set of rules now. They'd rather those rules, if they had a choice, be weaker rather than stronger. But up to a point, they're like, look, give me a rule I can follow. And so so, so you have to think about corporate America in a couple of buckets at this point. And I don't, you know, you could break these in, maybe you could make it 20 buckets. But I would think of buckets who say, you know, there's a bucket who says, we're a global company. We want a standard that will satisfy our global activities so that we can be, we can be in the United States, we can be viewed as adequate by... EU. I think that is a, I've been characterizing that as a small number of very important companies, but that's a perspective. Then you have companies who say, we're willing to settle for most meaningful privacy laws as long as there's preemption. I think that is a growing category. There's another category that says, we want preemption and we want a weak law. I think that started out as a pretty big category, but I think more and more of those companies are realizing that that's actually not the future, particularly for companies that have a broader perspective. And I think politically, the likelihood of a proposal that is a low federal standard and has preemption just isn't politically viable. So I think the question is, over time, are companies going to coalesce in that middle ground or in that GDPR-oriented ground? And I, I and I don't know the answer to that. And I think that we're still, despite how much activity there is at the federal level on privacy, I think we're still a couple years away from a national privacy law. The one wild card that I've been talking about is if in fact, we wake up on July 1st, 2020, and Massachusetts and New York and Pennsylvania and Illinois have passed meaningful privacy laws, then I think the industry is going to have to get together and agree on something that then could get passed. Until there's that pressure point, I think we're still a couple years away. I think that the odds of a national privacy law getting passed during the next administration, probably independent of who's president, is pretty high. I don't think it's next year or the year after that, but before the end of the next administration, Again, probably independent of who it is. I think there's a pretty good likelihood, and I think that time frame accelerates if, as I said, several states pass their own versions. And and the other thing I think is going to be important is because CCPA, again, sort of independent of what you view of the merits of CCPA, it's a mess of a law. There's all kinds of problems associated with it. And so I don't know that other states that are going to look at passing laws are actually going to pass laws that look like CCPA. I think they'll be, in some ways, better laws. That doesn't mean weaker or stronger, just means better written laws. So I think 
think we could end up again in, in a year or two with a whole bunch of states that have a bunch of these laws. I think the states found in 2019 that it wasn't all that easy to pass these laws. I mean, the California law passed because of a series of odd quirks that aren't going to be replicated in other states. And so the other states are going through a more traditional legislative process and they're finding it's not that easy to and that was the week in health law. You can find Kirk Nara on Twitter at Kirk J Nara Work, K I R K J N A H R A W O R K. Follow him; you will find lots of useful stuff. Kirk, it's always fun and fascinating having you on the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Show notes are at twill.com. I am at Nicholas Terry on Twitter. Thank you for joining me, and have a legally interesting but healthy week. <laughs>